You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is uh, November 9th, uh, 2020, and I'm here with Dr. Ginny Choi. And uh, Ginny, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for inviting me, Pete. And uh, so let's just get started with it. I would, I would like you to tell a little bit about your background and uh, how you got interested in, in economics in general and then more uh, uh, generally, you know, socioeconomic kind of questions and talk about your experiences at LSE and Emory and NYU before you got to GMU. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's actually funny. Um, uh, if you talk to my parents, right, like they, they will tell you that um, they're not surprised I ended up being an economist because even as a, even as a young kid, like, um, like I had, I had, you know, like I had arguments about like, what's, you know, like, what is my interest in doing this and what's the benefit to me and what's the benefit to you? Like, tell me everything, right? Like, so my parents have always thought that it's not surprising that I gravitated towards um, economics. And once I encountered economics as a um, as a field of study for the first time in high school, that was it. Like I was sold like from the moment um, then on. Um, but the thing, the reason why though, um, I got interested in economics and I pursued economics as a, um, as um, a um, study, um, a career path and all of that is because I lived and grew up in Indonesia where um, around where I lived and all the places that I tended to frequent, there's, um, there's slums all, all around these, um, like these places that I visit and in a, um, economic inequality was really apparent and not just apparent in a way like some, you forget about it and then it's like, oh, like I see something outside the window and that reminds me. It was just, um, it was just in my face kind of all the time. And um, I was, unsatisfied with the the gap that I saw between um, the poor and the lifestyle that I was living in my friends and everyone. So I thought there must be ways to solve poverty. And as a child, right, like I thought I could solve poverty. There's there's a solution to this. So um, so I thought about like what ways um, might be um, might be most suited to sort of helping me um, solve poverty and like I it was a process of elimination I was like you know like there's politics there's sociology um, there's anthropology and just came down to economics and I was like look this seems like and economics is um, seems like the most powerful tool available for society to think about how to help those who are um, who are in need yeah so um, you know, like that's, that's me. Um, so there wasn't like, a, I know you t uh, often talk about like you had a very influential teacher uh, who really got you down the path of econ. But for me, I didn't have that kind of moment or kind of teaching or teacher who was just like, um, who made me realize like, this is the way it was just more um, my in, in my search for how is it that I uh, that could help um, I could help people who need help but can't um, or, but need, you know, others to help them, um, as well. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, like how, um, I embarked down becoming an econ major and all of that. And the really funny thing about my economic education is that, um, there wasn't, you know, like, it's not like, um, I chose classes and I was like, oh my goodness, like, this is, this is it. Like, this is the field that I want to do within economics. It was a process of elimination, it turns out. Um, and every institution I was at, the classes and the courses that most interested me are, had always been the non-market econ classes where the insights of economics was being applied to what would be um, considered to be not traditional questions in economics. So like, um, like for instance, at Emory, like Paul Rubin, uh, Dr. Paul Rubin's class on law and economics, like that, that, that just blew my mind so much. I was like, oh my goodness, like you can use econ for 
things like this, like who knew, right? Um, and then I went to LSC and I got introduced to um, in a, um, what, what was it called? The philosophy of economics course. I think that's what it was called. I, that's where I got introduced to Austrian economics very briefly, but Austrian economics. I got introduced to economic sociology. I got introduced to Karl Popper through that course. And I was like, oh my goodness, like economics is more than what I thought it was. Like it's more than just a set of tools that helps us look at and you know like what available um, policies there might be to do xyz objectives and all that that's when i was like oh like there's something more to economics than i thought there was um and finally i when i got to nyu that's when everything solidified um i studied under um dr david harper um there who's also an, um as you know an austrian economist who taught my law and econ class actually at the master's level and um he spent um uh, a considerable amount of time in that course talking about entrepreneurship um, and how entrepreneurship was um, key um, to all sorts of processes that uh, uh, individuals participate in and the purpose, um, you know, like how it's important to uh, look at human action to be purposeful and deliberate um, decisions. And, um, and while I was there, I also took a capstone, a capstone class where I was introduced to experimental economics for the first time. And we uh, basically, we spent the entire semester just reading up on, uh, reading a lot of experimental papers that um, addressed um, key questions in economic development. And it's just a bunch of things, right? Like it was just like cosmic sort of things just kind of coming together and boom, Bill Easterly, when I went and spoke to him, it's like, hey, I wanna to apply to PhD programs. Where, where do you think, um, you know, like, do you have any recommendations? He, first thing on his list was Mason. Mm -hmm. um, so when I looked up Mason and I was like, dude, like they do Austria, they do experimental, they have, they do a lot of uh, research and entrepreneurship. It was a no brainer. Like I, like Mason had to be the place that I ended up. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. No, no, I, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I want you to keep going with that. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was just thinking that, um, you know, it's interesting because Harper, um, in a book that he wrote uh, before he was at NYU called The Main, Spring, uh, Main Springs of Progress. It's, it's a book in New Zealand. He actually uses the general social survey mm -hmm. to try to correlate the value systems with entrepreneurship. And mm -hmm. also he looks at psychological literature. So he, he approached like the Austrian version of entrepreneurship and development a lot different than say Kersner did in the right. sense that he's very empirical in 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 some sense so that uh that's kind of interesting uh to think about when you were exposed in the capstone class did was that about rcts or was it some other kind of uh you know what re related to development because I, I i'm trying to think of the timing but clearly duflo was already sort of on the rise or ascendancy in development economics Absolutely. and so the rcts and the idea of evidence-based kind of idea was that part of your like thinking in those things when you were because Easterly's a critic of that as is Deaton in some sense so was that part of the discussions or not really yet so at the time though um you're right like at the time when did I um I took it in 2008 and so Duflo was already kind of like a rising superstar um I remember reading a bunch of her papers in that um yeah. course but we didn't talk about um you know like I she might have used a terminology like um, RCT at that time, but we never spoke about it in that sense. We never spoke about it as like, we never talked about it like what can, for instance, uh, randomized um, control treatments tell us about various questions. And sh is, that, is that the right way to do it? We didn't have uh, methodological questions like that. We didn't discuss that either. It was more sort of like, how do we, um, here, are, um, here are the um, papers that suggest in, that have these findings? How can we think about um, important questions in development when we have these um, different flavors of um, answers and how do we consolidate them in a way that uh, makes sense? So um, at the time, the my capstone class was more, um, it, was, it was really great in that it helped me do a type of literature review in a sense of the available experimental literature um, in development economics at the time, but um, but it questions about, um, you know, like, is this, you know, like questions that we would 
asked today about RCTs. Those are not, those weren't, um, okay. um, weren't like, the yeah, they yeah. weren't like, we weren't discussing them yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that comes a little later when the claim to exclusivity, like this is the only way you should study development. Yeah, yeah no. At that time, you're in a kind of a sweet spot because there's still all the institutions rage you know, everything is still going on. So it's mm -hmm. kind of fascinating period of time. Mm -hmm. so you, you show up at Mason, uh, Vernon and Bart, I believe have just left the program and gone to Chapman, is that correct? They were at the tail end of it for sure. Um, it's yeah. in the first year when um, they, um, they like at the end of my first year, I think that's when they made the physical move to Chapman. So all of that conversation and sort of um, thing, like 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 the preparation to like leave was happening in that first year. Yeah. Um, but even the and people uh, decided to stay, and I'm some people, and some people decided to stay. Right, and, right. So and, like and, there was there was a lot of chaos at that point, and um, but at the time though, <laughs> um, I basically just kept you know like I just zeroed in on my classes and I was just like hey, like I um like maybe I was too myopic at the time but I was like look you know like faculty leaving is a big deal but at the moment <laughs> um they don't matter all that much to me because I just need to pass my courses and if I don't pass my courses I can't even get there anyway so right. let's do this and so I just like zero down on my classes and I didn't really um participate in sort of like the um, like that kind of conversation or worries. And um, I had enough worries already from my first year courses. So I didn't need more on top of that. Well, it goes back to what your parents observed. You were asking about, the, you know, how's, what's the incentives for me that I'm facing here? <laughs> By the way, when you were telling that story, I, I, it busts me up. I have no idea if this is a true story, mm -hmm. but supposedly Wittgenstein became a philosopher because mm -hmm. when he was a little kid, he, you know, his family was extremely wealthy. They might have been the like among the wealthiest in all of Europe. And his mom had this really fancy vase in the uh -huh. front foyer and he was running around and he knocked it over. And as he knocked over, he, you know, it broke into pieces. But right as he was knocked it over, their cat appeared and the mom came out and started, you know, being upset that the vase and she wanted to know, you know, <laughs> what caused the vase to fit. And young Wittgenstein says, well, should I tell the truth? Because if I blame it on the cat, the cat gets blamed, but no one gets punished because, you know, right? But if I tell the truth, then I get punished because right. I behave. So why should I tell the truth? And then that became the obsession. And you were asking, why is it in my interest to do this? Why is it in your interest? So I think that's, that's awesome. Anyway, um, so, all right, so you you know, you're involved in this whole atmosphere at GMU and you have uh, fellow students that you're interacting with. Uh, and again, many of them are doing non-market decision-making, but from an experimental point of view. Right. Um, and, and we mentioned already the RCTs are coming up. And so how did you get started down your path of this overlap between political economy social morality, market activity, and whatnot that, that is in your dissertation and, and other papers as well? So um, I wonder about that myself <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that like nothing was planned. It just um, like in the end, like it just kind of came together. And I, I think the most important part here was that, um, that um, you know, like I've always had like as I was saying earlier, like um, even in my undergrad and everything, I always had more political economy questions and social economy questions than pure economic questions. And that that's yeah. the sort of interest I've always had. And those were the things that always grabbed my attention. And the, uh, when I was, you know, um, so first starting out um, my graduate school career at Mason and also at, um, at N um, NYU, one of the things that most frustrated me was I didn't know how to connect the questions that and the topics that interested me with the tools that I had training in and that I, I also had interest in, right? Like I had these dual interests that, and there didn't seem to be an easy way to a married a two and that frustrated me so much like I like I didn't know how to even begin doing it um, and at the time um, I didn't have um, teachers who would 
encouraged me to do that, nor teachers who knew how to do that and thought that was a fruitful um, path to take. So in comes like Virgil, right? Like that's that's uh, that um, that's where everything sort of really started. Um, he he and I got connected through um, Ariel um, John, who's also um, here at Americas and also my office mate. Um, she's not here right now, but um, uh, so we got connected. She was through... part of your class. She was part yes, of your she class. Is. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so Ariel was part of that class. Um, was Jason? Uh, Imony and no Jason Imony was a year or two um, ahead of us. My class was uh, was Will Luther, Nick Snow, uh, Harry David, Shruti, uh, Roger Gopalan, um, Simon Billow, um, and Stephanie. Um, although she wasn't part of the PhD program yet, she was part of the MA uh, fellowship. So. Um, and Jamie was also part of um, in the PhD program. So um, the bunch of us like uh, were like we're starting out our graduate studies at Mason all in 2008. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And um, but anyway, like yeah, like Ariel introduced me to right in the middle of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and uh, Virgil and I got connected. We started talking, and uh, we. Um, and especially he introduced me to his work on, you know, the, uh, the market as a social space ty um, type stuff and culture, economics. Right. Um, and that's where things started. And, and even then, um, uh, like I didn't, it took me a while un um, until I realized with clarity what it is that I could do with my uh, training in experimental economics for the uh, for the uh, for the questions that I was interested in, and now now the research agenda that he and I share, yeah. uh, it took a really long time, and and in the beginning it was um, I will tell you like um, that those those first few years was incredibly difficult. Um, not only because we were trying to uh, find uh, footing where um, not a lot of people have uh, treaded before, um, I had a lot of um, uh, opposition and I had a lot of um, uh, discouraging um, comments from people whenever, you know, like I go and presented our papers um, at the, um, the Economic Science Association meetings and all of that, like effectively everyone was saying like, yeah, that's, um, that's cool, but we have issues with the way, how unclean your analysis are and you got, and your design is not like not sharp or anything. So like we have concerns about that. So we, I had a lot of uh, opposition because it was such a, um, because my, the questions that were driving us weren't solidly in experimental economics. Right. And um, that, that is actually, um, so, and that's actually ironic too, because nowadays um, the, the executive community of ESA is now having that conversation um, so there are um, a lot, they made an executive, um, you know, announcement a couple months ago now, at least a couple months ago now, and they're like, hey, um, there's, um, there's these general sort of um, concerns about um, lab experiments being, um, how it's being perceived um, outside our, prof um, our profession and how it's being perceived by general economics um, discipline. There are ways for us to go about this, but it requires us to, um, to sort of um, break down the biases that we've built up the, uh, in these past years, which was, if you're not doing a stand, you know, like some of which is, you know, if you're not doing a standard, um, uh, experimental economics question, like people are discouraged from it. Well, we need we need to encourage that creativity, encourage um, faculty members and you know scholars and students to uh, reach out and uh, and apply their um, experimental economics um, knowledge to questions like these, so that we can also um, and so that we can have a conversation with the general um, general um, interest people and the general interest people know how to have a conversation with us. And that's the that's one of the um, set of conversations that they're having. Um, so like it's, um, it's considering the fact that it's um, the, you know, the executive committee is the one who's saying we need to have this conversation. I think that's, I think that's telling in a yeah. lot of ways. It's very fascinating because again, during that period of time when you were studying that, you know, you have, I mean, the, the criticisms of experiments 
you know, and external validity kind of criticisms, they go back all the way right. to never. And that's what, you know, Vernon and Charlie Plot had to fight a long right. battle to do. And, you know, they had, uh, and others, I mean, but, but you know, especially Vernon and, and, and Charlie, you know, right. really had to fight hard, I think, to get the Absolutely. footing. I remember when I taught at NYU, Andy Schotter ran the lab there. And, and you know, again, it, it, game theory was how Andy Schotter made his name right economics experimental economics was what he cared about doing uh and he tried to create the lab but you know he had a hard as hell time trying to do that um and uh but you know he had an inroad because of the way he did you know he was a like you know a game theorist and and whatnot and and um you know all these guys are like that you know both vernon and, and charlie are extremely talented formal theorists and they were able to you know cut their 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 path with that and then bring the experiments in but there's other kind of questions that have been raised and including now all the way to the rcts and so you're seeing all of that going on uh one of the things i think is really intriguing and the students i think will be interested in this is that you know a lot of the 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 people that do empirical kind of projects in our community they do a lot of meta studies Mm -hmm. So rather than, than examining or creating their own data, they rely on surveying all the data and then summarizing the kind of idea. This is what Kaplan does in, in his work on education. It's what he's done on his, his work on, on uh, you know, now he's doing on poverty and whatnot. It's not like, like he's doing his own longitudinal study. It, it's mm -hmm. he's surveying the literature and then interpreting right. it. And you are doing your experiments as well as meta studies as well, studying all those things like that. But it's also the case, I, I wonder, like, have you thought about designing field experiments at all? Like say, with say, Ariel or Virgil in development economics, like, you know, Virgil and Ariel have this great project where they were looking at entrepreneurship in Trinidad and the various stages of it. And it does seem right to, to have a kind of so I, I guess I wanted to add a kind of field study, but I guess I wanted to ask you about the question of, in your mind, the methodological status or the way you negotiate lab experiments, field experiments, and then natural experiments. How do you see them in your head and how do they relate to ways that you would tackle socioeconomic questions? Yeah, so, um, and I know for a lot of um, non-experimentalists, they view those three things to be so, sort of like, um, what is analogous, um, and that, um, like similar to one another, and they could be interchangeable and substitute for mm -hmm. one another. Um, I, I don't think of them that way. Um, I think um, <clears throat> uh, lab experiments are which probably should be the one that one uses it, um, in particular situations and in other situations, lab ex um, like, oh, I'm sorry, uh, field experiments and all of that. Yeah. For lab experiments, it's, um, yes, there's an advantage of, you know, like you can use a, um, you know, so a readily available, easily, more easily accessible pools of subjects and all of that. Um, but you, a lab experiment isn't um, as valuable if you don't know the specifics of a mechanism that you want to be testing and therefore you could at the end of it you can say it's so you can cleanly have like uh, treatment a and treatment b and be able to say like here's the difference and th the only or or uh, or the only the only institutional difference here would be x or something like that right okay. um like where so it can give you um clean sort of um comparisons like that but it's also not the great place if your objective is to study a um, uh, a very specific policy. Um, if the intent of running a lab experiment is so that at the end of it you could say, um, uh, when we when we change policy A, we'll definitely have effect B at the amount of C. Like that's this is not the um, that's not what you would want to use. For field experiments, um, it is um, it is incredible in that you can get. Uh, uh, like a representative sample, right? Like you can get a lot of people, not just college students, but people of all walks of life to be able to participate um, in a way that they don't know they're an experiment. So like they, um, even though you, 
um, you ask students to sort of look at the um, environment that on the computer um, and, um, and make decisions based on what they believe they would do, they know they're in an experiment, right? And oftentimes um, you, it's, it's, a, it's a unavoidable reality that when you survey the students afterwards and say like, how did you make your decisions that a lot of them will say economics or incentives. And so, yeah, yeah. so even if you're trying very hard to uh, um, get away from framing and get away from um, experimental demand effects, those are just standard. Like you can't, you can't uh, eliminate that, but field experiments will allow you to do that. Um, and that's where um, it gets, um, and field experiments will be, uh, is really powerful in looking at what people do in real environments. It allows you to take advantage of the vibrancy and the complexity of uh, human society, human interaction, human decision-making, and allows you to just take it in and be like, okay, like we know that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things going on in here, but um, we're able to, um, we're able to at least suggest that if you have these kind, um, if you have um, this difference in environment, then we'll be we'll see this difference in outcome as well. And uh, for natural experiment, uh, natural experiments, um, those are ideal in a lot of times, but really hard to come by. Um, I think it's um, in. That's why I think people um, jump to um, take advantage of, for instance, like. Um, uh, like North Korea and South Korea when they can. And yeah. I know I, I at least like, you know, the some of the jokes are like uh, people have already like um, studies in mind. They're just waiting for the borders to open so they can take advantage of it. And certainly a lot of um, some experimental uh, experimentalists um, use the um, sort of natural differences between people who grew up in East Germany and people who grew up in West Germany and take advantage of that to talk about how um, how, you know, like maybe the way they grew up in, um, like in a communist regime might affect their decisions now and all of that. Um, so like there's, there's, um, you know, like the, those three types of experiments are, um, are available options, like just like the way econometrics and, um, and um, uh, what is it, uh, field work and everything are options. Um, I think uh, when we, when I look at the array of um, quantitative strategies that are available, I, I think about like, sure, I have training in lab experiments, but I need to think about what's the best suited um, strategy to use to answer a particular question. Um, and um, if I can't get, I can't, if I can't use the ideal um, strategy or I can't get at, um, cleanly get at an, um, a particular set of arguments or answers um, using any of them, then I do the best I can with what I have, which means that I have uh, then um, the, it's on the researchers to think about what are, you know, what are the propositions that I, I would need to address in order for, in order to make the claim that my argument holds water. So you can't prove or disprove it ever, but you, you need to think about how to provide um, people uh, evidence, enough evidence so that they agree with you beyond a reasonable doubt that you might be on to the right and the best um, explanation for a phenomena. Uh, so, um, so that's how I think about the various things. And, um, you know, having been trained in lab experiments, um, it doesn't allow me to easily move into field experiments. Um, I really, we, Virgil and I uh, really do uh, have in mind to do, um, you know, like uh, field experiments. We uh, that's sort that's definitely within our sort of realm of um, things that we want to do. But um, I don't. I need. I don't have expertise in that, and I don't know. I don't have the know-hows that say um, some of my friends do. Like uh, for instance, Luigi Butera, who was here at Mason and did his postdoc under John List. He now has the ability and has the knowledge to run field experiments right. uh, because he studied under uh, John List. John List um, um, mentored him, advised him through various um, big experiments. So he now has the expertise, but I don't. And um, so I, um, in order to sort of overcome that, like I, I'm like, Maybe it means like uh, we need to partner up with someone who does have experience in lab experiments, or maybe it means that I need to somehow um, uh, sort of 
learn the knowledge, whether it means, um, you know, like being part of a field experiment um, uh, that's, that might not be about markets at all, just be part of it to sort of get my hands wet and to understand what the process is like before I come back and be like, we're ready to go. Like, let's, and let's try to do a field experiment. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like um, that's how I think about them. Like I, they're not, uh, they're not uh, equivalent things and they're certainly much uh, very different things. You choose which ones are right for the questions you want right. to ask. Um, so I have uh, a question, a further question and then a, the comment that maybe hopefully stimulate. So the, the question is, is did you ever dabble as well in, in agent-based modeling at all or look into that a little bit? Yeah, so I tried. <laughs> Um, I tried. Um, let me just say that it turns out I don't have a brain <laughs> for coding. <laughs> And I didn't quite under, and maybe it's just a matter of spending more time with it. Maybe that's all it need, all I needed. But um, I took, um, let's see, um, I sat in on uh, Rob Axtell's um, game theory class at CSS department here. Right. Um, and I also took, um, I, I don't recall what it's called, but at the graduate level, they had um, kind of like an introduction to um, agent-based modeling for CSS. Um, and um, I got introduced in uh, Net Logo, um, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't understand um, how the coding worked and everything. And that was such an eye opener for me because I, you know, as a very young grad student, I walked into the class thinking like I have I have knowledge in game theory. I understand, um, you know, sort of how modeling works. I understand right. how to model uh, uh, like economic agents as homo economicus. So like, I, I was like, I know how to do this. Like, I'm sure, surely I know, I, so long as I knew the language, I could do this. Yeah. It's a different skill. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I did try, um, I, um, I did try, that's certainly something that um, I wish, um, you know, like, like certainly like still within a sort of like a very expansive sort of um, agenda, like it's part of it, uh, yeah. but it's, you know, sort of, um, uh, it's still sort of further away than um, than we would like because um, I don't know and we don't yeah. know how to do agent-based modeling all that well. It's uh, so the the now the <clears throat> the comment which I, I I'd like to get your reaction to, um, which is mainly directed at the students again, is that I think that one of the really amazing things about George Mason. So you've been at the LSE now that was undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Emory's undergraduate, but you were an economics person. You saw how the other economics professors thought about things and whatnot. Right. And you go to NYU, um, and then you come to GMU. To me, one of the biggest differences, and I've been a visiting professor at LSE. I've taught at NYU for eight years, and right. uh, you know, and, and I followed you around, Pete. You had no idea, but I followed you around and, and spent a year at Stanford. And one of the things that I think is so unique about George Mason in its economics community is the tremendous methodological diversity that exists, which doesn't exist in most places. There's usually kind of a, a, a more homogeneity and a certainly more hegemonic view of what the right approach to science is. And, and I mean, you raised a very good point about why experiments seem to be a very attractive way because you get greater scientific controls, right? And so that's, so you mimic more what would go on in normal views of scientific controls. Mm -hmm. But, and, and in each of those other environments, what you do is you give up aspects of scientific control to get something else, right? But it is also fascinating that when Vernon ends his Hayek hypothesis paper, he ends it by saying, yep, we worked it out in the lab, but does Hayek travel in the field? Like, could we do this in field settings? Mm -hmm. And then of course, Liss does this with the baseball cards, basically right. kind of thing. But then the question is, well, would it actually work in natural experiments, right? And so would we see this? And, and we're giving up something, but we're gaining something and, and we do this. So at George Mason, you know, students can pursue economics in a very philosophical way. They can pursue economics in a very historical way. They can do labs. They can do agent-based modeling. They can do traditional, you know, basically maximizing equilibrium models and then running regressions to focus on t-tests. Mm -hmm. You know, they can do all of that wide variety and we all welcome it and put it. So it's, you're right. It's not that they're equal to each other. They're different 
approaches given different questions. And so this is why I think Eleanor Ostrom is such an important role model Absolutely. for young scholars because she believed in what she called multiple methods methodology. And her argument was exactly along the lines that you just raised, which is you can't be a master of all of these techno techniques. You have to actually specialize and become good at something. And then what you do is you engage in intellectual exchange with others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard also. So it's, it's, it's so the natural tendency when you see all these different things and to say, I'm going to choose the methods that's appropriate to the questions that I ask then supposedly you think, oh, I'm going to take a class in every single one of these and be, you know, but you're not, you know, we have to recognize the division of labor. Right. So we have to recognize is the gains from trade that we have. And, you know, you've, you've already worked at a, at a kind of an unusual intersection. So you have non-market decision-making, right? So the economic approach to non-market decision-making, then you have experimental, and then you're mixing in that, like socioeconomic questions having to do with the social space and, and these other kind of things, which are slight wrinkles on each of those ideas. Um, so I guess that one of the questions, sorry for that, that, but I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you about since, you know, you just, you know, you, you've had papers in the, the highest scientific, scientific, not economics, but right. scientific journals, right? <laughs> and so what is the most important scientific proposition that you feel comes out of your work in this space that you've developed about political economy, social morality, and market activity kind of idea? Yeah, so um, there's a number of propositions that I think are um, really important. Um, uh, for instance, um, one of the propositions is uh, markets are a space where people discover um, um, who they're interacting with are good people or bad people. And I think that's something that we often discount as well. I, I, I mean, like here at uh, Mason, it's pretty, um, I think to some extent, it's pretty obvious to us because we understand the market as a process. Uh, we understand um, human action to be deliberate and purposeful. And we understand economics to be a science of meaning. So we understand that, um, that people are doing their best in the market space and they're going around trying to coordinate their activities at the same time competing with one another because it's there's limited resources and all of that. And then in that process, there's like all these things that arise from it, um, um, including, you know, like um, as Hayek um, talked about, uh, you know, a convergence to um, uh, a tendency towards uh, market uh, prices and all of that. But here's the funny thing, like you do that and you're going around talking to people and all of that, like you learn about the people that you're uh, you're you're uh, occupying the same space with, um, so um, even if it's not a conversation, you like like you know you bump into someone, you sh accidentally sort of shoulder into someone, whether or not that person says I'm sorry or just kind of looks at you, huffs at you, and then just walks off. That's going to tell you something about that person. If you see that person again later, you're you're already have this impression of him or her, and you're going to react on the impression that you have of them. And I think we, um, as um, uh, we as economists, really discount all of that. Like we have, we learn about people, um, and whether or not they're accurate information, and like let's put that aside. Like we learn about people through. Um, even the smallest interactions and add on top of that repeated interactions, add on top of that conversations, add on top of that, all the other social activity that um, they could be also participating in. I mean, come on, like um, a, a bunch of colleagues, like a lot of um, younger, younger um, uh, employees now at a lot of the uh, firms, well, pre-COVID, but like they often go to happy hour together. They have barbecues together. I mean, that's, um, that's not a, um, that's not an activity that um, in a purely economic model, uh, a purely econom um, economic model will predict would happen. Um, and you, presumably that's not an activity that people should be um, participating in, in in the first place, but that doesn't um, get you towards, uh, explicitly get you towards an um, a objective that um, they're trying to achieve within a particular space. So, um, so I, uh, for uh, for me, like having um, understanding that markets are spaces where you can learn about people and you can learn about the characters of the people that you're interacting with um, is a really sort of key proposition that falls out. 
um, related to that, um, I mean, like a lot of the propositions are very related. Um, like markets is a conversation about right and wrong. Like, like through this interaction, like um, I mean, like it. Um, some people might view sort of the learning through profit and loss mechanism to be too instrumental, too um, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, like self-interested. But it, like in a market space, that is how we learn. Um, and it's not about, uh, oh, um, do we get the highest profit and we learn from the highest profit only and we only learn from the most extreme losses. Uh, we, uh, we learn from whether or not somebody decides to come back and do business with us, even though they're going to be, at, um, they're not, we're not the best trading partners that they have available within their vicinity. Um, so this, um, the, the market mechanism of profit and loss um, provide, um, giving us feedback and telling us, rewarding us and punishing us for the various actions that we take. That's another proposition I think that's uh, really important. Um, that again, like I don't think um, uh, like um, a lot of economists have thought about. Um, and lastly, you know, uh, Marcus teaches us to be better people as a result of all the things that I just talked about, right? Like you can't talk about how people are adjusting to um, changes in their environment. You can't talk about people being entrepreneurial. You can't talk about people discovering um, new information and knowledge and um, profit opportunities if they're not retaining the new information and knowledge that they just gained. So they're learning through this process of, um, but they may not know this is, I mean, you know, the society wants to be a wants me to be a particular type of person. They, they, they may not know, but the market is teaching them um, in small increments, you know, like telling them like, these are, these are what's important to the people who are you interacting with and the people who they're interacting with are going to be responding to uh, values um, that they prioritize and that they treasure in their lives. So um, in the end, just merely by being a participant in the market, you can't come out of it um, unscathed. You have to come out of it having changed. And if it is the case that the market is a corrupting agent, you're going to come out of it as a like a really unpleasant person, like that nobody wants to interact, uh, who nobody wants to interact with. But who cares in that realm? Because everyone's going to turn out to be those kinds of people anyway. Or um, if the market is something, um, it's not that. If um, then, if if the market is in fact a moralizing space, then you're going to come out of it. Um, having camaraderie, you're going to come out of it knowing how, you know, how to interact with people and you're going to come out of it being a better person than um, the, when you entered um, the market space for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I really love the way that you just expressed that because I think that so much of the conversation that, so you go back in, in intellectual history and you see the argument for, for markets before they were widely adopted and various thinkers like Montesquieu to Adam Smith argue that markets have these civilizing components to them. And this is called the due commerce thesis. Right. But that gets lost in intellectual history to the ruthless efficiency of markets. Markets drive us to least cost technologies. They drive us to, you know, prices down to the, to the cost and, and all of that. And so we get uh, better quality products at a lower cost. But the process of doing that is that we're these little green, greedy monsters that are trying to maximize our utility as consumers or maximize our profits as producers. And we don't see the space. And everyone has recognized that that's too flat of a notion. And so we've tried to unflatten it by saying things like, oh, trust matters. Or, you know, these, but when we say trust matters or repeat dealings matter, or, you know, uh, what we do is we have a very flat concept of those things. So just think about what you were talking about with trust. So if it's the case, which I take as the argument in the first, first proposition, which is mm -hmm. that it's a discovery of agent type. So, you know, we could think of ourselves going into a game like a Vernon Smith investment game. Right. And, you know, someone has a, 
uh, a C tap to their head or uh, as a cheater, or uh, I don't know what the phrase would be, an NC, which is not cheater or cooperator and non-cooperator. You know, you just look at them and you say, oh, like, you know, this, and you have a weeding out. And so this is, you get Robert Franks. If homo economicus could choose an own utility function, would he choose one with a conscience? Yes, you know, why? Because he yields greater outcome. Mm -hmm. But we actually don't talk about what the conscience actually does. But what you're doing is you're actually saying, look, you know, we discover whether or not people see me or whether or not they actually listen to me. So they might see me, but they actually don't listen to me. Then they're not really seeing me. And so therefore, I'm not going to deal with them. You know, I'm going to go deal with somebody else. And so I have to trust that someone's going to actually see me and and not just hear me, but listen to me and 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 whatnot and that all comes out in the in the market interactions and we make those judgments and if that's not the case you know we we exit so it's not just again go back to repeat dealings it's not just an issue of buying and or abstaining from buying which is of course the mechanism i you know i go to my my you know restaurant and i either choose to go there again or not go there again but why do I choose to go there again? It's because I pass a judgment on the way that they interact with me. So I think it's, all this stuff is really amazingly fascinating what you're doing in unearthing. And we're going to have a blast talking about some of those papers and, and whatnot. But so you've just laid out these propositions, which I think are just a great summary. Um, but I guess the question that I want to ask you to share, you know, is, is you know, you had when you talk about it's obvious you had great, you know, uh, uh, you know, upside rewards that you feel and, and you're getting closer to answering questions that drive or scratch at your brain or whatever. But what were your biggest, you mentioned a little bit about this, but what were your biggest challenges you had in pursuing the project and in trying to meet, you know, you used a great phrase before, which is trying to make sure that your argument carries water or whatever. Uh, in the, the philosopher Willard Quine refers to this in his webs of belief as having argumentative virtue, mm -hmm. which is basically that you and I as scientists, we face a epistemic burden that is in the social interaction of science, which we must meet, which is that we have to have an argumentative virtue so that someone who's independent of us looks at what we're providing and says, that's a good argument. And, and if they say, no, that's not a good argument. And so this is leads to these all kinds of challenges that we face, because if people are methodologically biased in one way or another, they're going to pass a judgment that may or may not be true about your work. But that is independent. Like you don't have a choice variable over that. You have to meet their, you have, because if you're going to have a successful argument, you can't just take your ball and run away and go home. You have to then figure out a way to do this. So maybe you could talk to the challenges and the way that you guys have tried to, to do that and, and who your, who your interlocutor is, because that's going to depend. I mean, if you're, if you were writing that book, let's say for Deirdre McCloskey, she would be very different. She would be more satisfied at an earlier level than right. other people. But if you're writing that book for, I don't know, you know, someone else, Michael Sandel or someone, then the argument's going to be different even. Mm -hmm. So you face this challenge in a world of economics about what is the argumentative burden that you must meet. You know, what are, what are some of those challenges? How did you go about doing it? How did you think about like addressing it and, and whatnot? Yeah, so um, the book is um, is an effort um, of ours to try to shift a conversation about um, the morality um, of markets from a philosophical one to a um, more social scientific one. So that already alone <laughs> presented some challenges, right? Because um, it meant that we had to number one tease out sort of the empirical propositions that. Would, um, that would be true if markets were corrupting, what would be true if markets were in fact moralizing. So we had to tease all of that out. And, um, and it wasn't just a matter of us just doing um, isolated and independent thinking. It's like, oh, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Like what would be the types of 
evidence and arguments that we would uh, we would not not find convincing. That wasn't the main point. Like we weren't trying to convince them or persuade them otherwise. We all we wanted to do with the book is say, let's you have this belief, you have this unwavering belief that markets are morally corrupting. If we are able to get you to pause and say, maybe I don't have a solid proof, like sort of answer as I thought I did, then we did our job. That's exactly what we wanted to do. So we, it wasn't like uh, we weren't talking to the most staunchest um, uh, Marxists out there. We wanted to talk to uh, the marginal, um, the marginal uh, person um, out there in the spectrum of things who might, uh, who actually do. Uh, might believe that markets are morally corrupting, but are willing to have it a engage us in a conversation. So those were the people that we wanted to talk to, and it and and so we had to go through sort of uh, what are the key criticisms that um, of um, markets market more uh, morality of markets out there. So we had to talk. Um, we had to um, look at that. We also had to look at what are the defenses and why um, and sort of as a um, as a collective out of it pull out the propositions. Um, and the other challenge after that was uh, we, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, uh, for researchers and not just researchers, everyone actually, that they think in order for, um, in order to have a successful argument, you have to have the smoking gun. There's precisely one thing out there that is irrefutable and it's gonna change everybody's mind the moment we, uh, we uncover it. Um, that's not the case. Um, and certainly with, given the sort of um, depth and, um, and depth of the conversation on the morality of markets over arguably thousands of years since Aristotle, we had a really high bar, um, you know, so to sort of um, address. Yeah. And um, so that meant that we can't do just experiments. We can't do just case studies. We can't do just econometrics. We had to adopt a more, uh, more multi, like the uh, mixed method uh, uh, approach. Yeah. To be able to just simply be able to say, maybe, maybe there's, uh, we should suspect this view of markets. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that this is uh, it's it's very relevant to a lot of our educational uh, efforts as well, which is just not to. No one's in the business of evangelizing and con and getting people to become converts to a right. position. That's not the educational mission. The educational mission is to expand the reasonable set and to understand and to understand what's in the reasonable set and what's outside the reasonable bounds or outside the bounds of the reasonable set. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's a really but the part the 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 argumentative burden that one must meet to be in the bounds of the scientifically reasonable is much higher than most people anticipate because they, uh, the, the, the easiest person to fool is yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for you to find confirmation bias, right, all the time. So you're always having to do checks on that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that I compare a lot of times the difference between the approach that you and Virgil take in your book and the approach that Pete Leeson takes with respect to behavioral economics as imagine that you had a, uh, what you guys do is you take on the arguments that are against your position. And if you read the first three or four chapters of your book, it would seem like you just built this giant that's right. And then what you have is you have this little like butter knife and what you're doing is you're using a very, you know, simple thing and you're cutting the ankles of this giant. And eventually the butter knife gets all the way through and you know, the giant goes top one down. Pete, on the other hand, is like sitting there with a giant sword. And as soon as the behavioral head just slightly rises up against the homo economicus, he chops it off before it even gets started. So, you know, there's just a totally different kind of skill because you never get to see why it is that anyone would ever want to be a behavioral economist mm -hmm. because it's get, it gets cut off at the top. Now, there's certain beauty in his swordsmanship skill. So I, I, I'm not trying to undermine that, but there is a difference between that and 
cutting off a giant at the ankles. And there's a certain kind of idea on that of seeing that. And, and a lot of it's beyond, uh, well, it, it is argumentative taste uh, to some extent. And so depending on where you are on that, but it is a, it is a different style, there's no doubt. And uh, um, so I applaud you on, on that. And let me ask you a couple last questions. One of them is about your current project, which is building on the friendship idea even further. And, you know, what, tell us a little bit about that project uh, and the way that you're uh, sort of approaching that again with multiple methods and, and, and whatnot. So in a lot of ways, um, the Market Friendship Project is actually a return to uh, where I started um, in the yeah. sense that when I did my dissertation, and um, as you know, I did my dissertation on trust and markets, that right. it, I didn't do it in terms of understanding trust as like a virtue or bourgeois virtue as um, as McCloskey would say. We, we, I approached it as a measure of social capital. So like I was, like I started um, um, embarking on my uh, uh, sort of um, like journey in this research by looking at, um, is it uh, like, uh, social relationships and friendships that occur in market and market type settings. Right. So um, this um, particular project um, is going to be building off from Virgil's paper on uh, markets as a social space. And the key proposition there that we're going to be uh, in, uh, exploring is, you know, his main thesis, which is markets as, um, is a social space where meaningful relationships also do occur and again that's like a um that's a like weirdly a proposition that um that gets a lot of people riled up um it it might be because of the way they already think about the morality of markets but certainly they think markets are are um, um destroy communities and communitarians as you know are um, but it also gets it on the other side too right because the standard you know, sort of Stigler model is one, you don't have interlocked utility functions, right? You also have zero, like, you, you don't have the individuals of measure zero, right? I mean, you know, to, to have that kind of world doesn't require that burden of having that kind of interconnectedness mm -hmm. in a weird way, right? And so right. you have it on both sides. You have the sort of formal representations of the market and then you have the critics of the market and you're like blurring the lines between both. So you're going to get attacked from both sides. Yeah. yeah no, absolutely. And it's, um, it's actually fascinating because whenever I talk about, you know, this, um, not just a project, but the ideas generally, um, people have a really hard time understand and like sort of wrapping their heads around it. And I, ha you know, like for instance, right. Like, um, um, like I would have never met you unless it was um, as a result of the market. Like I, I get that we're now also, you know, so we have deeper relationships where we're able to call each other more than just teacher and um, student, but also um, colleagues and friends and all of that. But the main reason why our relationship had ever emerged was because I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in economics and I came to grad school. If right. I wanted to do something else, or if we didn't have, um, right. opportunities to engage the market in that manner, our relationship wouldn't have ever um, existed. Um, so the bond over over Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I would like actually the other day, like, um, I was who was I talking to? I was talking to some of my friends and I was like, look, um, you want to talk about markets as a social space? I have relationships with my local baristas. Like they know me when I, the moment I walk in, they know my order. They they look at the label and they just go like, that's weird. That's not what Jenny usually gets. So they, they check in with me. It's like, is this really what you want today? And I'll be, and yeah. then, you know, we have conversations like that and we share sort of, they, um, I, I mean, I gain more from that relationship. They share tips with me on like when, when they expect um, sort of special limited edition stuff to come yeah. up and like, oh, that like, so like, as a result, like there's so many, um, there's, uh, we, we have such a rich social, um, uh, social network as a result of also having the market. So that's the main proposition that we want to be um, looking at. And again, we're going to be approaching it in the same sort of methodological manner as we did with um, my first book, uh, uh, like 
and doing um, experiments, also taking um, doing more meta studies. Yeah. Um, and but on top of that, we're also uh, going to uh, we're planning on doing some field work, and we're also planning on um, involving um, some some more surveys. So um, wow. I, this is uh, the this project in a lot of ways is um, much bigger because we want to be able to um, build a really strong case. And in order to build a really strong case, given the opposition from both sides, like yeah, we yeah. have to uh, think about the conceit and sort of um, potential criticism and objections that our um, argument might get and try to um, try to get at that. Do you have any, uh, thank you very much for that. I mean, I'm really looking forward to, to that and discussing uh, that, that, uh, that work. Um, do you have any advice you'd like to leave with the graduate students about opportunities maybe they could have to pursue socioeconomic questions in, in, in this space that we're creating for them and, and go from there? So first things first, it, we have to recognize specialization and division of labor. It is certainly the case that um, somehow, like I've, um, I've, um, it was able to get training in experimental economics, which I then used to answer social economic questions. But that was more, uh, I think, more of a fluke, right? Like um, it wasn't planned; it just kind of emerged in that uh, manner. And in a world where uh, you want to be asking social economic questions and use experimental methods, which are incredibly disconnected fields. If you were trying to do that on your own, like that's that's a considerable amount of investment um, that they would need to make. And um, and it's not like they can just be like, oh, I understand experimental literature. I'm like, let's go and do this. They actually need to get training on how to design experiments, how to analyze experiments. Um, and so doing, um, so, Although I represent one strategy to approach that, the better strategy is to um, is to befriend someone who has expertise in the empirical method that um, that um, they wish they could use in order to answer some of the questions that they want to answer, and uh, form a collaborative effort. And I, that's I mean that in a lot of ways. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom is like the role model in that because she was humble. She recognized that, um, you know, like she's, she's an, I mean, she's a Nobel Prize winner. She's an incredibly smart woman, but recognized that she can't simultaneously be an expert in game theory and agent-based modeling and experiments. And like, she just knew that. And what she did was take, uh, form friendships and, um, and, um, and with those friendships built collaborative efforts to, um, answer questions that are important to the both of them. And I, um, I think that um, there, um, the grad students, especially at Mason, are in a prime place, um, place for that because um, as we were talking earlier, this is one of the few places where there's a lot of diversity on the methodological front. And, um, and we, uh, I mean, granted they're in a different uh, physical space, but they got the experimental faculty members and, exper um, and the experimental students here. They take the same um, classes, at least in the first two years. And so there's a lot of, um, and, and, um, and, you know, like they, um, they um, don't, um, experimental students, um, as I was saying earlier, like one of the key objectives that the ESA is trying to push forward is for experimental students to not be specialized in just experimental economics, but be like, for instance, a labor economist who uses experiments or, or be a, so, um, a econ sociologist who uses experiments. So they're also being asked to diversify and reach out and um, and all of that. So this is the prime place to do that. Mason is like the prime um, place. And um, if um, if they come out of, um, I know it, it can easily happen that way. And, and I know a lot of people who have sort of graduated from Mason, not really knowing any other experimental students or not knowing, um, or experimental students not knowing a lot of Austrian or public choice students. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. This is like, this is like, the place to do it. And while it might not be apparent at the moment, um, later on in their careers, um, as they pursue their own research and like, you know, they further their research um, agendas and everything, that is so critical. And being able to 
have a productive and critical discourse with people, not just in our discipline or even subdiscipline, but all um, across disciplines too. And I think that's uh, that's the really hard thing. Um, in order to have a productive discourse, there's a lot of work that goes into it, um, and a lot of um, you know sort of um, uh, preparation that is needed for that. It's uh, having a reasonable conversation. Uh, is so much harder than being being just stating your opinion and leaving and dropping the mic and leaving the room, right? <laughs> I mean, of course, everyone wants to do that, but that it, it's so much harder to be able to have a conversation uh, like that. So um, it's going to be, I mean, like for anyone who wants to do um, quantitative explorations of um, social economy, it's going to be a really difficult path but it's going to be really fruitful and uh, really rewarding at the end because um, there's nothing like it, I think. And um, I, and certainly for me, at the end of it, I got my first book, so it's really yeah. awesome. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was awesome. Uh, I, you know, I'm so thrilled that you're here uh, with us. Uh, we were able to bid you back from your, uh, you know, career at St. At St. Vincent's and, and come here and, and work with us. And, and now you're going to have these stream of works and all the other things you're doing. So I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.